Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Good to have you on the show, Michael. How are you doing today? Doing very good. Happy to be here. And uh, thanks for having me on. Let me just start with a quick introduction for our listeners. Michael Kara is the founder of Tokyo, a SaaS platform that allows companies to launch their own embedded finance products with the proliferation of innovative fintechs and financial providers. Jumping into the market over the five years, Tokyo has been built to make services more accessible through its low-code platform designed to build and launch new banking and finance solution quickly and easily. Tokyo has recently raised 20 million from the likes of Albion VC and Aldea Ventures. Before we dive deeper into strategies that you you deployed to build Tokyo, take us back to the founding aha moment. Yeah, so it actually was our, our previous business that, um, that we had founded and uh, we had built a, a SaaS platform for small businesses. We gave them expense functionality, we gave them payroll functionality, and we kind of stepped back at one point in time, well, we're kind of give them expenses, but not expense cards. We give them payroll, but not payments. And that was back in 2015. So it was very much the early days of fintech started getting started. And we started to see this view, you know, where fintech could play a role of moving things from simple SaaS to really enabling financial services. So that was where the mine really first started going. And I think it was more that when we wound up there and we kind of we exited to, uh, to Grant Thornton and we started you know, thinking about, you know, what was the real problem that we were trying to solve? We were we, initially we thought the problem that we were trying to solve was to give entrepreneurs and small businesses their time back. But the problem they really were having was access to financing uh, and access to financial services. And that, you know, as we saw as fintech started to evolve. It was very, very consumer focused at first. So all your neo banks, everything, and even today, it's still very consumer focused. And our view was that this SME, these corporations, they're being left behind, and that's where we saw this ability to bring something that we thought could really be different and better for them. So, who's your ideal customer today, and how do they find you? Right now, we're primarily focused on financial institutions. This can be payment providers, FX providers, lenders. And again, within markets where our primary market has been the UK, we recently expanded to Spain and we pick up a few things around Europe. They're our ideal customer profile because they've got a a very clear problem statement, right? Most of the companies we're working with are are established. They have a large existing customer basis and they are getting competitive threats coming in from fintechs. And therefore, they need to modernize, digitalize and take advantage of this whole fintech ecosystem that's built up uh, around the world. We make it much quicker and easier for them to do that. Again, financial institutions tend to be focused on the the fin. We bring the tech. It's a good relationship. Uh, How do they find us? Obviously, we've started to build a a brand for ourselves uh, in the market here through everything from events to awards to, to the likes of that. So, you know, we go out directly to them. Most of our clients in some way, shape or form are regulated. So they're findable. And on the flip side, we've got a very strong ecosystem of partners and um, we help our partners win deals. And lots of times, you know, people come to them. Our partners tend to be banking as a service providers, tax providers, payment providers. So they've got the underlying financial services uh, that people are looking to buy, but they don't necessarily want to build the application layer, right? And all uh, in our platform, 
fixes that problem as well as offers a, a large kind of suite of other features to help them get a product to market. So our partners bring a lot of deals to us as well. Amazing. If I were to a customer who's a startup, if I'm not licensed, are you offering uh, products uh, specific to Tokyo or you're just the platform that enables someone to sell their own products? Yeah, so for us, we're a software layer. We're not regulated. We don't want to be regulated. We work with a network of partners who are regulated. So we've got a number of clients. So even some financial institutions, if you're a lender, you're not necessarily regulated to, to be any money institution or a bank or whatever you, however you want to set it up. So we do not provide that, but we tend to have partners that do. So a lot of our partners in the banking as a service per, uh, space, they would provide either an agency license, a distributor license, and we tend to work with our prospect clients around what type of partner is best for them and which one can provide them those services. Take us back to your first customer. How did you acquire them? How did you find them? How did you convince them that they need a Tokyo? I'll still say first customer, we were pre-product. We had a demoable product. We had recently integrated with one of our partners. So the lead actually came from that partner. It was a lending organization, mid-market lender. They had the challenge that they were they're doing invoice financing and similar type products. Product was quite transactional, price-based um, around who was going to acquire them. And they wanted to have a stickier product, right? So they wanted to extend that. They wanted, first of all, banking services so that they could see the transactionality of their clients, offer them things like cards with better, you know, with either cashback or, or improvements that would give them a more day-to-day -day interaction with them. So our banking partner was able to solve part of that problem by providing them the underlying accounts. Um, and we were able to provide their wrapper around that with a kind of a full suite of, of products. I think... When I think about, you know, where we kind of brought ourselves in and why we were able to land that first deal, especially at early stage in, in product development, is, you know, we brought, they, I think what they saw as the differentiation was they were a lender, they were an old school lender, they lacked this, in, this view around customer experience. And our platform, was, especially with our experience of where we were working with small business before, we understand how they operate. We built a platform that, you know, had the same especially in the SME space, you almost, they're very much somewhere on that convergence of consumer and business. Many of their tendencies are, are very consumer-like. So a very strong customer experience, easy onboarding process, tools and technology that are similar to the neobanks. We were able to bring all of this very quickly and effectively get them live on that. And I think that view that we understood their customer base, we understood the problem they were, they were trying to solve, is what allowed us to win a client when we were still kind of on that kind of early stage verge of a launch our product. That's an interesting topic because there's a lot of founders who want to build a product that is fully functional and then they want to land their first customer at the same time, but they don't have enough funding. So what's the sweet spot between determining when your product is demoable and when it's final? My personal opinion, until someone's willing to pay for your product, it's not a product. So, you know, it's, a, it's an idea, it's a concept. And I think oftentimes people will hide behind what's, what's the saying that uh, perfect is the enemy of good. And, you know, at some point in time, you've got to put your product out there. You need to let people play with it. Even if your first prospects look at it and go, this is terrible. I still remember a price point that we put out for a, an early stage client. And they looked at us, uh, like we ended up completely changing our pricing model a few months later, but we, we got, you know, things like pricing wrong, the value proposition we didn't have nailed yet. And until we really kind of went out there and just kind of put that in front of people and got shot down, got good feedback, got bad feedback, 
you know, we eventually got our place where we could could sell a product that we felt to hit, hit the market. So I would always recommend get uncomfortable, um, expose yourself a little bit, and try to sell your product maybe a little bit earlier than you think. Even if you got to be honest with, you know, we use the term design partner. If you have to sit there and say, listen, you're going to get a better deal on this because I'm going to be working with you before it's fully done. Uh, but you're better off doing that and, and rather than hiding behind. Perfect. This is a great advice. Thank you for sharing that. What early acquisition strategies did you deploy that did not work? Maybe I'll start with the ones that did work just because that'll lead me to where we got to on the, on the other wrong one. So the ones that worked first and well were partners, right? And that was almost good to a fault. You know, we, we had partners didn't want to develop what, what we had, yet their clients in certain cases needed what we had to be able to buy them. So we had a very symbiotic relationship with our partners. And that was a channel that we went after quite heavily from day one, right? Now, what we realized is almost on the, on the flip side of that, what didn't work well was when we first went and tried to sell without a partner quite early days, it was, well, actually, once we sold you on our concept, now we need to introduce you to one of our partners and you need to go through their cycle and their sales cycle long, is longer than ours. So that's one where we kind of realized that it wasn't just flipping on a direct channel that we had to really kind of think about how we get to market around this place. You know, think about the at what point in time we engage partners and the likes of that. So it was a little bit later that we really hit that challenge, but it was maybe on the, on the back of some, some good luck of strong partner channels. What about the acquisition strategies that did not work in that case? Well, that's what I'm saying is our first acquisition strategy, our first shift to direct didn't work well. Our sales cycle flipped on its head where we used to get very warm leads on the back of a partner introduction. We now had to kind of make sure those, the, our sales cycle was longer. And then before signing with us, they would want to sign with a partner. So we had a second sales cycle. So you had a, a very disparate approach in those two channels. But it's one of those things we had to muscle through it because you need a direct channel. So we had to go through kind of a long, hard slog of building up a direct channel, building, getting our SDs, SDRs on board, getting our sales execs on board, prospecting, even though we knew each one of those was going to be a longer, harder deal than if we got it from a partner. How do you manage the risk when you're building a sales team that has SDRs, account executive, especially in an enterprise model with a long sales cycle? How do you manage the risk of you know, hiring the right people so that your conversion cycle gets you the return on on IOI eventually? We're an enterprise SaaS platform, but I would say there's a big difference between enterprise clients and mid-market clients. And so the range of clients that you can be working with are, can be quite different, right? And we, what we realize is true enterprise. So when we look at financial institutions, you're looking at tier one, tier two banks. Um, when you're looking at corporates, you're looking at, you know, um, 100 billion plus, or at least 10 billion plus businesses, right, that have very strong procurement cycles. So as we've looked to go up this chain from maybe earlier stage fintechs, what we've tried not to do is go too far. So a lot of the businesses we're working with now are maybe 500 million, 1 billion, 2 billion, maybe up to 10, 15 billion on the top end, right? And they are much more sophisticated buyers. They have deeper, I wouldn't say full procurement processes, but they're doing a proper due diligence. You're multi-threading your sales. You're dealing with legal compliance, uh, product, leadership, and the likes of that. So it's a more complex sale, but it's not to that level where you're at a proper 12, 18-month sales cycle. You know, So we went to what were early stage fintechs where 
we were maybe three months sales cycle. We had two week sales cycles, which were brilliant, but we realized that wasn't sustainable. Um, you know, a lot of those businesses, especially now that we are hitting a downturn, will have funding problems, all of those things. So for the past, you know, 12, 18 months, we've been making this shift to what I'd call mid market companies, right? A healthy, sizable mid market company. So if I'd say our sweet spot right now, a lot of our companies are, you know, maybe 500, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 employees, 500 million to a few billion. We think it's a nice enterprise for us because they still are, they still tend to be a little bit quicker in their decision making. We've had a few of those flow through in six months, which is a nice timeline. But maybe you're looking more now at a six, eight, nine month sales cycle as opposed to a three or four month sales cycle, but not yet quite at, at that, right? Now, what that means to your question there is when we bring people on board, it means our onboarding cycles are a little bit quicker because you know their first sale can happen in the first six, eight months, not in the first 12, 18 months. The complexity of the sale, although it's gotten more complex where we were, is not still as complex as a full enterprise sales cycle. As we look at it, it's that how do we move up the curve of our target client base as opposed to making big leaps and jumps? And, and that's how we kind of manage de-risking how we bring people on board and make sure we can get them productive and get a, a return on the, that hire sooner rather than later. If you had $1 million and that's the only money you get, in which channel would you invest or in which sales tactic would you invest it? We're enterprise, right? So it's not going to be on marketing. It's going to be purely on direct sales channels. You know, At the end of the day, right now, getting out there, being in front of people for us is most important, right? And I think it's one of those things is early days, it's, you have to build that channel. You need to have some level of control over your destiny. It's also on 1 million, you can get a bit of runway out of that. Like I said, you have some level of control. Other channels, I, you know, I still think for enterprise, enterprise selling, we do marketing. We spend a, a little bit of money on marketing, but we do it in a targeted way. So we do account-based marketing. So we're not doing massive brand building exercises. It's, it's targeted and usually in support of our direct sales channel. Great. Thank you for sharing this. You raised around 30 million in funding and the market has cooled off recently. What three factors have played to your favor? It's still early days, right? So on the, on the market cooling off, we agree with you. It is cooling off and I think it's going to get cooler. So I would say it's a few things. So this fintech SaaS category of sorts, we think is still kind of getting off the ground. And out of our kind of cohort of competitors, we've raised the most by a, a chunky bit. We'll yet to see, but we know if our competitors can continue to sell, continue to raise money in, in this market, will they still be here? Don't ever wish anyone bad luck. And I, I hope they do make it through, but it is a, it's a challenging market. Second, we do have competitors who are uh, more established and they are very much in that kind of higher tier of enterprise and they're selling into tier one, tier two banks. And what we see is with this downturn, the ability for them to come down into the mid-market is going to be difficult. Their price points are quite high. Uh, the price sensitivity of these buyers is, is going to get harder. And we think the ability for those mid-market companies to invest their funds in building a solution like us themselves isn't going to happen. So we actually think a downturn of the market will accelerate that build versus buy uh, decision towards the buy. And we'll be well positioned for that. There's only two answers for you, but I think those would be the two that we kind of see playing out right now is a shift towards buying rather than building and potentially a, a thinning out of the ecosystem. Yeah. 
Thank you for sharing this. When you were young, what conversations did you have at dinner with your parents? So it was entrepreneurial in nature, for sure. Risk-taking would be the wrong word, because that was by far not the topic of conversation. But I was born in, in America, so I was born in Alabama, grew up in Florida, uh, probably about two hours north of where you are for now. They moved over to the States when they were in their 30s. Entire family still lived in Ireland, so they were the first one to make the move. They moved through the States to different areas, had to meet new people, new friends, get new jobs along the way. So there was always that little bit, I wouldn't even say the words free spirit, but that ability of, you know, you can kind of make your decisions and do what you want to do. And there wasn't some rigid way of operating. There wasn't this expectation that you have to get the best grades or get into the best school or do those things. But there was always encouragement of, you know, hard work and competition. And we were very much into sports. So that ability to kind of try try as hard as you can, that'll, that's how you get success. And don't be too afraid about making the right decisions, make the decisions you like would be more the the topics where we were free to talk about. And I'd say that inspired to uh, <laughs> take the jump of being an entrepreneur. Thank you for sharing this with, with the listeners. If you want to be remembered for one thing, what would it be? Well, it, it, there's probably two or three answers for that, right? Depending on the audience, you know, for, they'll take the, if I had to pick one first, it's going to be a, you know, family, right? Be a, a good father. Uh, creating a good life for you know wife and children and all those things and having a great great home life because that's the one that'll stick around the most at the end. If if I bring that back into work though, it's what I always wanted. And my co-founder and I originally left. We were consultants and we loved doing the consulting stuff. Did some amazing pieces of work and all of that. But I just felt like my legacy there was a PowerPoint leaving. I actually remember my speech to my boss at the point in time. I said, at some point in time, I want to be able to turn around and look and see something that I have created that is there and is there when I'm gone. And not necessarily when I'm gone and dead, right? <laughs> but, you know, legacy is to create something. And, and I think that's what probably is a great feeling when you get around and you realize that you've created a business that is sustainable, that other companies are, are, are growing their business because of your technology, that people are building their lives and their livelihood because of the employment they're able to get out of your business. And, and actually, they're happy and they enjoy what they do. If there's one legacy is creating a place where, you know, a, a business that actually don't want to say makes, makes the world better because that would be a little bit of faking it, but actually helps the, the you know, uh, our industry or this space move along and that is sustainable and, and outlives myself from at some point in time, I retire or whatever it may be and keeps going. And maybe that's a little bit broad because it's not as being the best at this or the best at that, but a, a business that outlives me, I think. Thank you for sharing these insightful tactics and advice. What's the significance of Tokyo? How did the name come up? I think, I think, I think everyone, everyone thinks there's some amazing meaning behind it. So I'll, I'll tell you, we, um, my co-founder and I, we've created probably you know, five or 10 businesses over the past uh, 15 years. And one of them, we had just kind of dabbling a little bit in blockchain. And we created a little company called uh, Tokyo, which was Token Input Output. And the original logo it looked like ones and zeros for binary binary codes. That was how that was. And then we created what is now Tokyo. And we called it uh, loomapp.io. And we were in a fintech a legal a fintech accelerator for a large law firm. And a week before we were about to go to the finals, a French company called Loomapps uh, raised like 30 or 60 million. And the law firm goes, you're not coming here next week with that name. So we're like, hey, what do we do? So we're rushing around like, well, we already own this other company and we weren't using it anymore. We always loved the name. So it literally was like 24 hours. We rebranded, redid the website, changed our LinkedIn profiles. 
and uh, Tokyo for the rest of our lives now. Michael, thank you for being part of our show. We wish you the best of luck with Tokyo. What's next for Tokyo and how can people reach you? Yeah, so um, anyone can always get us simply through the website, fill out a form. People can reach out to me, Mike at Tokyo. Next up, you know, we closed the funding round and we're very much now on scaling on our existing platform. We've built a, a really strong product. The functionality is going to be all and almost where we expect it to be at this point in time. So it's really about taking advantage and, and monetizing all that effort. It, we are not racing to new markets. Um, we think we have a lot of space, at least within Europe, right? So right now we're primarily focused on the UK and, and Spain. We'll continue to scale in those markets and we'll expand into the rest of Europe. You know, our view is we'll we'll also probably start scaling up again uh, the, the scale the, the size of our clients. Uh, we are already working with good, solid mid market financial institutions. We are speaking more and more with with large multinational corporates, with larger tier one, tier two back, banks, all of those things. So you know, I think right now it's about scaling up the the existing markets and the likes of that. Amazing, Mike. Thank you and have a great day. Perfect. Great to speak. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers.